<sighs> well, if you are new, one of the things you should know about us as a church is that we love to take books of the Bible and just go through them. We believe that the Bible is God's word and that every word of it is useful and profitable for us to help build us up as followers of Jesus, to help bring transformation in our lives. And the book of Leviticus is one of those books that many people kind of give up on in their year reading through the Bible because it just seems so foreign and so distant and even times so archaic. But here we are reading the book of Leviticus on a Sunday morning. And you know what? There are people who chose this Memorial Day weekend to go camping. And they are outside, in the rain, not reading the book of Leviticus right now. So we are favored and highly blessed. And we are looking at the fourth of the offerings, the fourth sacrifice, which is known as the sin offering, or as you'll see in a little while, um, also known as the purification offering. So let's turn our attention to God's word, and I invite you to pray with me and pray for me as we invite God to do what he wants to do during this time. Lord, we thank you for your word. We confess that all of it is breathed out by you, and it's profitable for teaching and correcting and rebuking and training in righteousness. And Lord, even parts of the Bible like Leviticus that seem confusing or distant or foreign, Lord, we believe that you have something for us here. And so I ask that you would open our hearts and open our minds to be receptive to that today. And Lord, I pray that you would help me to only teach that which is in line with the truth of your word, and that you'd give each one of us a closer walk with Jesus as a result of our time together here today. We pray this all in Jesus' good name. And everybody said, amen. So last summer into the fall, I was uh, given the gift of a pastoral sabbatical. And actually, in fact, Pastor Jason, who will be leading us in communion, he's going to start a pastoral sabbatical here after he gets done leading us in communion. But uh, one of the, yeah, we, we don't let him off too soon. He's got to finish communion first. But the, one of the books I read while I was on sabbatical was this book here by Eugene Peterson. It's his autobiography. It's called The Pastor. You might have heard of Eugene Peterson, a pretty well-known author and pastor. And I've actually been holding on to this quote since my sabbatical last August so that I could open today's sermon with it. So uh, this was uh, from when he, he talks about growing up as the son of a butcher. His dad owned a butcher shop, and every year his mom would make him a bigger apron so that he could go work in the butcher shop with dad. And he said he grew up growing up in church, hearing about the, the prophet boy Samuel growing up in the tabernacle, who every year would get bigger and bigger clothes. And he said, I started to make these connections between temple worship and the butcher shop really early age. And his, he talks about it, his priestly imagination was stirred even as uh, a young kid. And so uh, here's the quote that I wanted to read from you, though. He says this. He said, one year... We had a pastor who specialized in the tabernacle, the temple, and the whole Hebrew sacrificial system. He took on the book of Leviticus as his text and preached three months of sermons on it. Can you imagine? I I was immediately interested. I was an insider to exactly this sort of world. I grew up experiencing the sights and sounds of animals killed and offered up. I had spent a lot of time by now in our local slaughterhouse and often helped with the slaughter. But after a couple of Sundays, I lost interest in what our pastor was up to. This man knew nothing about killing animals. And though we never butchered goats, the rich sensuality, just like all the senses are involved, right? Smell and and sight and all of that, of Hebrew worship was reproduced daily in our workplace. It never occurred to me that the world of worship was tidy and sedate. Our pastor had it all figured out on paper, but I knew it wasn't like that at all. 
I couldn't help but wonder how much he knew about sin and forgiveness. He certainly knew nothing about animal sacrifices. See, sacrifice was messy. Blood sloshing on the floor, gutting the creatures, gathering up the entrails in buckets, skinning the animals, salting down the hides, and in the summertime, the flies. Flies everywhere. Now, I will confess to feeling slightly attacked by Mr. Peterson in this passage because I know Leviticus on paper, but I've never butchered an animal. You know what I do know, though? I do know the messiness of life. If any of you have lived on, you know, any length of time under the sun, you have been involved in, you have been around heartbreaking, messy, bloody, gory, gruesome situations. I, I, uh, I can remember the first time as a pastor doing a graveside funeral with parents who were burying one of their children. I can remember as a pastor the first time, the first time sitting in my office and pleading with someone to repent of their um, adultery and their infidelity and try to repay, bring reparation to their marriage. You, you're, you're not, you know, some of you, most of you are not pastors or involved in, in that level of life, but you've lived some life too. You've sat with people. You've sat with the messiness and the brokenness of the world. You've sat with the, the gory, bloody details of people's lives. And actually, most of our modern American society is engineered to make things seem cleaner than they actually are. We avoid those types of things. We avoid the messiness. On the practical level, I'd be willing to venture a guess that very few of you have butchered the meat that you eat. We go to, we go to the grocery store. Very few of you have had to like, physically pick up a dead body and bury it in the ground like most of the world for all of human history. We have medical professionals and people that deal with that kind of stuff. See, sometimes skeptics or critics of the Bible, they'll come to a book like Leviticus and they'll say, see, this is what I don't like about the Bible. It's so bloody. It's so violent. It's so gory. It's so gruesome. But friends, I would argue that the book of Leviticus is actually more honest about the reality of the world we live in and therefore more actually helpful uh, about what the solution might possibly be. Rather than turning our attention away from the messes, the book of Leviticus invites us to really truly consider the mess that our sin makes and the mess of sacrifice that it takes to clean it up. And that's the big idea I hope to get across to you all today. It's this, the sacrifices of Leviticus are messy because sin is messy. Particularly the sacrifice of the, the sin offering, or it's also known as the purification offering. And I want to talk about the mess of sin. I want to talk about the way sin can create a mess. <clears throat> I want to talk about the effects that it has, and then the solution that we need. So let's pick up in Leviticus chapter 4. I'm not going to read through all of it, but I want to highlight some things, starting in Leviticus chapter 4 and dipping into chapter 5 a little bit. God, speaking through Moses, through the book of Leviticus, shows us some of the ways that sin just causes a mess. And the first one is through sins of ignorance. In verse 2, it says, tell the Israelites, God speaking to Moses, tell the Israelites, when someone sins unintentionally, 
against any of the Lord's commands and does anything prohibited by them. Or if you scroll down to verse 27, it says, if any of the common people, just the regular folk, sins unintentionally by violating one of the Lord's commands, does what is prohibited and incurs guilt, or if someone informs him of the sin he has committed, like you didn't know, someone has to tell you, well then bring a sacrifice and you'd be forgiven. Let me ask a question. Does ignorance at times cause a major mess? Oh, I didn't know, I didn't know, you can't hold me accountable. Well, you still can create a giant mess even out of ignorance. I think of a simple analogy, I have one teenager who is actively driving and one who's going to get their license here in hopefully a month or so. And, you know, the idea of like, well, I I turned the wrong way down a one-way street. I just didn't know. Well, you can still get into a car accident and cause damage to the vehicles or cause damage to life. and, 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 And it just creates a huge mess. And here, God, through Moses, is saying, yeah, sometimes our ignorance causes a huge mess. This is why discipleship is such an important thing for us at Sound City Bible Church so we can grow, not to be puffed up with knowledge, not to be a bunch of Bible nerds, although that's fun, but the point is that we might live lives of knowledge of how to live a life that's pleasing to God and not sin with ignorance. So sins of ignorance can cause a huge mess. Another one that's highlighted is sins of leadership. In verse 3, it says, if the anointed priest sins... So the one who, in a few weeks, we're going to look at the fancy clothes and all of the consecration that happens for the priest to serve in this way. But sometimes they sin. These are not perfect priests. The leaders aren't perfect. So when they sin, here's the sacrifice for them. Or if you jump down to verse 22, it uses the word just leader, the very generic term for leader. Anyone who's in leadership, if they sin unintentionally and violate any of the commands of the Lord, uh, his God, by doing what is prohibited, and incurs guilt, and if someone informs him about the sin he has committed, he's to bring an unblemished male goat as an offering. How many of you know? Sins of leaders can create a giant mess. Leadership is this place of influence. You have people under your care. You have people under your direction. And when you fail that, you create a mess not only in your own life, but in the lives of those that you're leading. Parents, listen up. Educators. People who, if you're a boss, you're a manager at your work, you're a leader here in the church, an elder, a small group leader, pay attention. Leadership. Sins of leaders can cause great messes. Conversely, it says the sins of the people in verse 13. This phrase, it says, if the whole community of Israel errs and the matter escapes the notice of the assembly so that they violate any of the Lord's commands and incur guilt by doing what's prohibited, well, then the assembly, the whole assembly, must present a young bull as a sin offering. I like it that it says, if the entire community of Israel sins. Now, friends, we are much more individualistic-minded than most, well, most of the whole rest of the history of the world. We're very individualistic, but the people of the the Bible were much more community-minded. They were much more communal. And so for them, they didn't have to stretch their imagination very much to think like, oh, the whole people group, they all just did it and sinned together. But I would actually submit to you that we have examples of whole entire groups of people losing their proverbial minds all at once and committing great sins. Mob mentality. Uh, What Edwin Friedman called um, 
the herd instinct, anxious, reactive herding? Has anyone been like paying attention to the world the last couple of years, right? Like the idea of just a whole entire group of people banding together to do something sinful? Here it is, right here in the book of Leviticus. Causes a huge mess. So collectively, the people need to understand what they've done, repent, and offer a sacrifice. And then lastly, if you dip over into chapter 5 a little bit, this is what I'm kind of categorizing as sins of carelessness. And I mean that like by like not caring. So there's a few different things. It's uh, in verse 1, it says, if someone has seen or heard or known about something they've witnessed, but then they didn't go and give testimony in court when there was a call put out, like you just don't care. Like I saw this, I could go offer testimony, but I just don't care. That is sin. Uh, In verses 2 and 3, it talks about being careless regarding ritual impurity. And we have not gotten into all the ritual impurity laws, but the idea here is someone's like, ah, I don't know, I just, yeah, I touched a dead body, or yeah, I was unclean, and I just don't really care, not really dealing with it the way that God said to. It's just kind of careless or cavalier. And then in verse 4, it talks about those who are careless with their tongues, speaking rashly in an oath and just popping off and just, yeah, said this thing before really kind of considering it. Just being careless. How many of you know being careless with your tongue can cause significant messes in your life? Now, I do not think that this list in the book of Leviticus is meant to be exhaustive. But I believe it's meant to be demonstrative of the kinds of ways that sin shows up and just messes everything up. There are other ways. We could talk about other ways. And there's other ways even highlighted in Leviticus or the other books of the Torah. But this gets us going. Watch out for sin. It will show up anywhere it can and cause a great deal of mess. Now, second, I want to talk about the effects of sin, the messy effects of sin. And to do so, I want to actually quote at length from a scholar named Mark Scarlatta. Mark Scarlatta wrote a book on Leviticus that has been, in my opinion, the most helpful resource I have read to help understand the concepts of what is going on in Leviticus. This is a lengthy quote. Uh, It will be up on the website and my sermon notes if you want to get it later to review it. I'm just going to read this. I'm going to read it slowly. I'm telling you that publicly for accountability so I don't read too fast. But I want you to think about what sin does, the effects that it has, okay? Mark Scarlatta writes this. He says, when thinking about the effects of sin in Leviticus, it's important to remember that we're not just talking about something that causes personal spiritual death. Of course, sin does create death in our hearts, but that was not the primary way that the ancient Israelites understood sin. They conceived of sin as a force that leads the world back into a state of chaos. When sin enters the world, it's as if creation order breaks down and leads humanity back toward destruction. You guys remember, like, Genesis 1, God is ordering and sorting everything out. The light from the dark, the greater lights and the lesser lights, the dry land from the sea. God's putting everything where it's supposed to be. The the Waters above, the waters below, the man and the woman who then come together in marriage for procreation. And all that. Everything is just ordered, just right. And then sin shows up, and it's like a force that just starts to bring destruction and disorganization into everything. Scarlatta continues. He says, sin is not just something that merely had personal consequences. It affected the individual, the community, the land, 
and especially the tabernacle. Now, this is a difficult concept for us to understand today because sin has largely become privatized in our modern world. We think that if we sin and no one knows about it, then the consequences are between us and God. If I ask for personal forgiveness in my personal prayers, well, that should be enough, and then I can get on with my life. In Leviticus, however, sin is a force that has a very real impact on those around us and on the physical world. Whether it's intentional or unintentional, it's not something that can be hidden away because it will ultimately have adverse effects on the whole community of faith. All right, now he's going to do a little kind of imagination thought experiment here. He says, this is where we need to think about Israel's understanding of the materiality of sin. It's probably something you've never thought about before. Sin being almost like a material substance. The idea is that sin is pictured or imagined as a physical substance, which is somehow connected to the physical and the spiritual world. Sin has the potential to contaminate physical space. Consequently, if one sins, we might picture a stain or a blemish that somehow rests on God's holy dwelling place. A person's uncleanness causes God's home to become unclean. And the more that the pictured substance of sin contaminates God's house, the greater possibility that he will leave because he cannot dwell in the uncleanness of sin. Now, though there were no literal physical stains from sin on the tabernacle, the Israelites perceived its contaminating effects and so made sacrifices to cleanse God's holy space. Christians are used to understanding sin as a spiritual concept that affects the individual heart or soul. But just imagine, imagine, imagine your sin if even your most private thoughts had a negative effect on your church community. Imagine if every sin by those in the congregation stained the church and somehow left it unclean. And imagine that the sins of the community built up so much and throughout the year that you feared the Holy Spirit might be driven away. Do you imagine? Remember for a while there, um, like restaurants due to COVID were doing like the temperature checks as you would walk in? And that was to try to keep the space clean so that COVID wouldn't spread. Imagine we had like a sin meter. I asked Pastor John to look for one. He hasn't found one yet. But find a sin meter... And we just check you on your way in. It's like, nope, you haven't done enough repenting this week. You can't come in. Because if if sin hits a certain threshold, God's not going to show up here today. I want to take a moment to just, on this idea of private sin versus the effects that it has. You know, it's very easy to indulge a fantasy or a lustful thought, or it's very easy to be gluttonous privately, or it's very easy to give place to like just angry, bitter thoughts in your own heart and mind, and to convince yourself that those are victimless sins. They don't hurt anyone. But I would argue that the scripture teaches there is no such thing as a private sin. First of all, the book of James tells us that small sins have a real way of growing into large sins. 
In the book of James, he says that it's, it just starts out as desire, and then it grows into actual sin, and sin, when it is fully mature, what does James say it leads to? Death. That those pesky little small sins have such a way to grow bigger and bigger and bigger. There, there's no way that someone takes a firearm and goes and commits a school shooting without years and years and years of private hatred and animosity being built up in their hearts. There is no way that someone just randomly one day commits sexual abuse without there being years and years and years of lustful fantasies that are given place to. Now, I'm not saying that um, every single one of us, you know, if you have lustful thoughts or if you have angry thoughts, it's going to lead to that inevitably. And I'm also, by the way, I'm not saying that there aren't good, like, practical, political, and, and, and solutions we should look for and all those sorts of things. But what I am saying is every follower of Jesus has a responsibility to put to death the little sins within you. And to urge everyone to do the same. Because sin, it's like a roaring, ravenous lion. You put a starving lion in one little corner of your house, it ain't going to be very long before he starts prowling around looking for some more people to eat. Secondly, the Bible connects sin as being harmful to you, the individual who commits it, in such a way that you cannot go live out your created purpose. In the book of Jeremiah, it talks about worshiping idols in your house. Again, private, just some little private idolatry. And the prophet Jeremiah says, you do this to your own harm. We were meant to be image bearers of God, reflectors of God to the world. And when we harbor private sin, it's harmful to us and our created purpose. Number three, the Bible teaches that our private sins are even harmful to the world, like the creation, the cosmos. This is what's going on in Romans chapter 8, where it says that the creation itself has been subjected to this bondage of decay. And that, and that the, the creation is groaning and waiting for the sons of God to be revealed. When will the people of God show up? It's through Jesus that we have, a, we have a, a, a responsibility to care for the planet that God has given to us. And then lastly, there's no such thing as private sin because all things will be revealed in the end. Ephesians 5, talking about, you know, People doing things are shameful to even mention. It's done in secret. He says, everything, Paul says, everything exposed by the light is made visible. Don't have anything to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness. You may think that privately, on your own, you can harbor sin, and it doesn't hurt anyone. It doesn't affect anyone. It doesn't do anything. But the Bible paints us a very different story. That spiritually, we are all connected to one another, to God, to the creation. And even those private indulgences of the mind, anger, lust, fantasy, laziness, all of it has an effect. There is no such thing as a private sin. So what's the solution? Well... The solution is going to be rather messy then, isn't it? And specifically, in today's passage, the solution for all of these sins is the sin offering or the purification offering. This offering, I'll remind you, this is the first one that is a mandatory offering. 
the ones that we've looked at before, the burnt offering, the grain offering, and the fellowship offering or the peace offering, those were all voluntary. You just give them when you want. I love God. I want to offer him a, a sacrifice of devotion. Boom, burnt offering time. This one is not. This one is mandatory. When somebody sins, when the leader sins, when the people lose their minds collectively and sin, it's mandatory. The Hebrew word, if you're keeping score, is hatat, and it just means of sin. But many scholars prefer to translate this as the purification offering. And it's, if you want a, a big theological word to go along with it, it's the word expiation. It's the word for cleansing. That this offering is done, if you keep reading it in detail, it's done to provide a cleansing, to provide a washing. But it is a messy affair. It is a messy business to offer this sacrifice. Michael Morales, another biblical scholar, offers us a little summary statement, a little something like this. I had someone after the 9 o'clock service say that it made them queasy, so trigger warning. Okay. He says this, The slaughtering technique of slitting the throat ensured the maximal drainage of blood from the animal's body. Precisely here, in collecting and manipulating the blood, the priest's labor would begin in earnest. Dashing. Tossing scattering, sprinkling, daubing, or pouring out the blood, depending on the particular ceremony that's involved. Typically, the blood would be applied to one of the sacred objects associated with a sanctuary and God's presence, whether the altar of ascension, you'd smear blood on its horns or dash blood against its side or pour it at the base. Can you imagine that? The altar of incense, which is within the holy place, you'd smear blood on its horns. Or the veil that partitions off the holy of holies, you're supposed to throw blood against the veil or in its direction on the floor. Or on the lid of the ark, that box that holds the Ten Commandments, you pour blood on the lid of the ark within the holy of holies, you sprinkle it on I should say. The significance of the blood rite for atonement cannot be overstated. Could you imagine? I, again, would venture to guess, even if you have butchered your own animal to provide meat for your family, you have not collected the blood in a bucket and then gone around in your garage flinging it against stuff. This is a messy affair. This is wild. And there's a dual imagery here. Obviously, there's the imagery of death and devastation, right? An animal is losing its life. Blood is being spilled. When people see blood, when you see blood, it's like, uh-oh, right? Like you, you parents, you had your kids, like, you know, they're, ow, mom, ow. It's like, well, is there blood? No, you're fine, right? It's that kind of a thing. Oh, there's blood. All right, well, now I have to take it seriously. There's a dual imagery here, though, because it's, it's not just blood as the picture of death but it's also blood as the picture of a cleansing agent. Blood as a cleansing agent. Blood as a detergent. Blood as a soap. Now, okay, any of you who have ever bled, uh, a nosebleed, a cut, you got blood on something, you get blood on the shirt, right? A shirt like this got some white in it, right? Get blood on that shirt. What's the assumption well, there goes my whole afternoon because I'm going to have to clean this or I'm just going to take the shirt off and burn it and just throw it away, right? Blood is, like a, blood is like one of the most staining things we have. And yet here, the Bible's inviting us to think about blood as being a, a cleansing agent. 
a soap that washes clean? I mean, just pause on that, like just the imagery. Just, it just, it's worth just sitting on for a second. Yesterday, over the weekend, I did a little bit of like work at my house. I did some like sheetrock repair and a little bit of painting. Mild stuff, not impressive at all. But like I've got stuff all over my arms and sheetrock and mud and paint and blood because somehow I cut myself painting. I don't even know how. But like I had to wash my hands so many times. Like washing my hands, washing my hands. And every time I walk over to the soap and I'm thinking about this sermon, like what if like just pump, pump the soap and just out comes like cow's blood? I, yeah, you're right. It is gross. Whoever said gross, yes. But this is what the Bible is inviting us to. It's interesting. It even said in, in our scripture reading in, in chapter 6, verse 27, that this meat of the offering has been butchered and sacrificed and anything that touches the meat will become holy. It's like this blood and this sacrifice has this effect. It just explodes out and makes everything clean around it. You know, it's interesting to think about your blood. Yes, it's a stainer. It stains. But actually, inside of your body right now, your blood goes out through your arteries, bringing oxygen and bringing nutrients to every cell in your body. And then what does your blood do? Collects the waste And that blood goes back through your veins and the blood washes away the contaminants and the waste in your body. So right now, blood, the living blood that's in your body is washing and cleansing you constantly right now. Now the Bible comes to us from a pre-scientific era. That's a pretty profound insight, I would say. Living blood brings cleansing. But this also raises one more question. Sorry to get too deep in the weeds here, but this is, this is important stuff. And you asked. You asked to do Leviticus, so this is your fault, <laughs> collectively. What is the blood actually cleansing? If you read through the descriptions, the blood is applied to what? What is the blood applied to? You, the priest would take the blood, they would smear the blood on what? The objects, the furniture, the tabernacle. Nowhere is the blood applied to the worshiper. So the blood, what the blood is cleansing, is not necessarily the worshiper. What the blood is cleansing is the tabernacle. The blood is the cleansing agent that cleanses the tabernacle from the sins of the people. The people keep sinning. The people are sinning all the time, and they keep having to bring these sacrifices week after week, month after month, year after year at the Day of Atonement so that the temple would be clean, so that God wouldn't leave. This sacrifice is the people coming and saying, I'm sorry, God, that my sin has affected your holy dwelling place. And this purification offering provides a cleansing, a way for people to be in God's presence, but it doesn't deal with the source of the mess to begin with, the human sinful hearts. This is what the author of Hebrews is talking about. For those of you who were around five, six years ago when we went through the book of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews talks about this. He says, the law has only a shadow of the good things to come. It's not the reality itself of those things. And so because of that, it can never perfect the worshipers by the same sacrifices offered continually year after year. Otherwise, they wouldn't have stopped being offered since the worshipers, well, they'd be pure once for all. They would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But those sacrifices are there as a reminder of sins year after year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. 
He says every year these people keep coming and bringing the sin offerings. And it's, it's just a reminder that you still have sin in your heart. Just keep on coming. Look, Lord, I'm sorry for my sin. I'm sorry for the way that my sin has affected your holy dwelling place. But here I am again, still sinning, still messed up. But that's why the author of Hebrews has such good news. He says every priest stands day after day, ministering and offering the same sacrifices time after time, which those sacrifices could never take away sins. But this man, who is he talking about, Sound City? Jesus, good answer. After offering one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. See, Jesus shows up, and his death is a brutal, bloody, messy affair. He is whipped and, 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 and experienced the flagellation of a Roman scourge, and he has a crown of thorns dug into his scalp And he has nails driven through his hands and through his feet. And as he died, he has a spear thrust into his side and blood and water pour out. The crucifixion is messy. The crucifixion is gruesome because it shows us on the one hand, the gruesomeness of our sin and the mess that we have made of God's good created order. But on the same time, the blood of Jesus is now a better purification offering because it doesn't just cleanse the tabernacle. It doesn't just cleanse God's dwelling place. It now cleanses the worshiper too. And all who trust in the death of Jesus, your sins are washed away and you are made clean. There's a better blood available to us. This is what the apostle John writes in 1 John chapter 1. He says, look, if we walk in the light, just reality, the light of God, who he is, well, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and here it is, the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us. There's blood as soap again. Blood is cleansing us from all sin. And you know what? If we say, oh, I don't have any sin, you're deceiving yourself and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is such good news, friends. Because now, when we come to the Lord in repentance. When we come to the Lord in repentance, we say, Lord, I've messed up and I am now trusting in your blood. He doesn't just offer us temporary cleansing. He offers us permanent cleansing once and for all. And we don't have to be afraid that even when we sin, that God will abandon us and God will leave us because he is now with us permanently and the blood of Jesus is always washing us clean. And every time that we bow on our knees and we say, Lord, forgive me, we are reenacting this purification offering. And the blood of Jesus is just washing us cleaner and cleaner and cleaner and cleaner as we follow him. We're no longer defined by that mess. That's not who we really deeply, truly are. Question, okay. We sin. I sin. I, I, I said it. I sin. You sin. I'm not out here on this branch by myself. Come on, folks. This week, sometimes you have those sins where you're like, what is wrong with me still? I had a, a cup of coffee, and I set it on the entryway table, and I was going to put my Bible in my backpack. And here's the problem. I hadn't drank enough of the coffee, so I was very sleepy. 
And when I'm sleepy, I'm klutzy. When I'm not sleepy, I'm also klutzy. But when I'm sleepy, I'm more klutzy. And I went to put my Bible. My Bi- I'm holding a Bible in my hand. And I go to put it in, and I slip, and I miss, and I knock the cup of coffee all over my backpack, all over my gym bag with, like, my clean clothes to change into after exercising. And, you know, blood's a real good stainer. Coffee's up there as well. And I behaved immaturely. Sinfully, just not good. And then I went and repacked my gym bag and poured a new cup of coffee and driving over here and sat and had prayer time. Like, Lord, what is wrong with me? That I'm still. Anybody with me? Like, come on. You've been walking with the Lord. Some of you've been walking with the Lord longer than I've been alive, and you still sin? And yet, here is Jesus. Not, not, we're under no risk of Jesus packing up his tabernacle and moving on. Because his blood provides a perpetual cleansing of the messes that we make. So you're not defined by the mess. You don't need to hide in the light. You're not defined by it. You bring the reality of who you are into the presence of God day after day and let him wash you clean Let me close with a couple of just practical thoughts of what this looks like. Walking as clean people. First one, I want to just encourage you. We we take sin seriously. We don't sanitize it. We don't clean it up. We don't hide it away. We don't just say, oh, it's just a little private sin. Be freaking ruthless with your sin. It's a contaminant. It messes everything up. And all of what I said about Jesus cleansing you is completely true, but you need to let the cleansing effects of Jesus bring you to take sin seriously. Number two, be cleansed by Jesus. Particularly if there's anyone here, if you're joining us online, who has not trusted in Jesus. See, dead works religion would try to tell you, you clean yourself up to come to the Lord. But we say, no, come get plunged into the fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. You can't clean yourself up. Jesus is standing here with his his arms wide open in embrace. And yeah, it's it's a bloody, gruesome embrace. And he says, come to me. Let me wash you clean. Number three, I urge you to live in the newness of the life that you have. Though we sin though we stumble in many ways, you have been made new in Christ Jesus. And you are more forgiven and you are more set free and you are more empowered than you realize because the enemy wants you to keep thinking in the old ways. You know when temptation rears its head, you can say, I don't have to say yes to that. I can say no to it. I'm a new creation in Christ. I don't have to give in to that. I don't have to see the the mess get created anymore. I can say no. I can walk in newness of life. You can, church. By God's grace, and then when you fail, when you stumble, just walk in repentance. Lord, you knew, you knew, and you still sent your son Jesus to be the perfect sin offering to purify me and to cleanse me once and for all. Friends, this is our Savior Jesus. He is the ultimate sin offering. He is the ultimate purification offering. And even now, as we prepare to come to the table of the Lord, And sing, what can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. May you be cleansed.
His mercies are new every day. Confess to the Lord, repent, and receive his grace. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that you've made us clean in Christ Jesus. Lord, we thank you that it's not through our efforts and our works, but through the perfect work of Jesus, our sin offering. And I ask and I pray now as we prepare our hearts to eat and to drink at the table and the cup and the the portrait of that blood, Lord, we would even think of it today as that cleansing agent that washes us clean from the inside out. We love you, Lord, and we thank you that you are not scared away by our mess, but you move towards us in love and with healing. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.